This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. We talk about inspiration a lot here on Revision Path, so I wanted to ask Facebook Live's product design manager, Tori Hargrove, what inspires him? Uh, I've always been inspired by creation, uh, creation just in nature, uh, creation in uh, human creativity. And at Facebook, we get to create new things every day that help make the world a better place. And I'm really excited about that. Learn more at Facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at provisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Halo Group is looking for an Atlanta-based JavaScript developer. Buffer is looking for an engineering manager. Dockyard is looking for a senior UX and visual designer. And here at Provision Path, we're looking for a design writer to join our team. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I'm proud to announce that Provision Path is sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast for any length of time, you know that I went to the inaugural event in 2015, and I've been talking about it pretty much ever since, so I'm really glad it's coming back for a second time. This event takes place October 6th through the 8th at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. The theme is Designing Resistance Building Coalitions. And early bird tickets are now on sale. They're pretty affordable too. Around 22 bucks for students and about $54 for everyone else. Now this event will sell out, trust me. So make sure you get your tickets today. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools you need to be yourself on a bigger stage. So whether that's enterprise business or just freelance work, you can join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to grow their businesses on their own terms. And with integrated Facebook and Instagram advertising, you can find new customers and reconnect with others. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. I tell this to my clients, but you know, most people don't realize that when you register a domain with your contact information, it's published in something that's called a who is database and spammers and hackers and other people can use that information to get into your inbox. Now, unlike some other companies, Hover includes free who is privacy with all supported domains to keep your information confidential. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. 
So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now for this week's interview. We're welcoming back one of our most popular guests, product designer and game maker, Kat Small. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, I am Kat Small, and I'm a product designer at Etsy. I also work on various other things, including video games with Brooklyn Gamery, and I also have helped to build the project Good for POC. Now, you've been on the show before, episode 18 yeah. years, and years ago. You're like the pioneer <laughs> here at Revision Path. Uh, and when we first spoke, you were working at Bedrocket, and since then you've worked at SoundCloud. Now you're currently at Etsy. Can you talk about some of the work that you're doing there? Totally. So when I started at Etsy, I was working on the payments team, and I helped to launch the Etsy payments product. So that's like the new way that people can buy and sell stuff on Etsy and it's a lot easier to use and we just wanted to make something that is a little bit more secure in terms of like before there were certain times where we couldn't really intervene in terms of like oh no my item like some for for example someone could buy something and then a seller might just be like oh well I'm not going to ship this thing and because it was going through for example PayPal or even people would send checks and stuff like that. Sometimes things could get really hairy and Etsy wasn't really able to intervene. But with Etsy payments, now they actually can, which is really awesome. And so it was a lot of uh, kind of sharing information about why this new service is important and helping to transition people over as quickly as possible. So I, I switched to another team now, and that team is the marketing services team. And I'm super excited about the stuff that's coming up with that. Unfortunately, can't get too into it, but definitely keep your eyes open. We're doing a lot of really cool things, and it's a really exciting time to be at Etsy. What's a typical day like for you working there? I'm, I'm assuming you're still on the payments team. Is that right? So I'm with marketing services now, but the work, like the, the day-to-day life is pretty much the same. So I can kind of give a general overview. So as a product designer... Generally, I would say I'm doing like one of a couple of different things. So if it's the beginning of a project, I'm probably doing some research and we have user research team, which makes things a lot easier because there's like years and years of previous research that was done. So a lot of the times what I'll end up doing is look through past research, past data and start to understand the story around what we're trying to do with a new project. And once I figure that out, then I am probably going to be facilitating some kind of like session so that we can figure out some ideas. And I really enjoy involving my entire team in in those ideation sessions because there are just times where there are things that I would never think of. And just having people with other perspectives is super useful. So we'll try to like get out some ideas from everyone or as many people on the team as possible. And then I'll actually start distilling that a little bit more and turning that into like visual ideas and prototypes. And then once those prototypes are created, then it's really about testing it. So this whole process spans like a week or so, but it's really important to understand like, like maybe one day I'll be doing one of these things and then another day I'll be doing something completely different, which I think is super fun because product design is just like, it never gets old or boring. There's always something new to do, which is really, really cool. How have you found that you've sort of changed and grown as a designer 
over these past three years? I've definitely learned a lot more about being flexible. For example, I think at the beginning of my product design specific career, I was really into this concept of there being like this process that should be followed every single time. And I think when I was at SoundCloud, it was when I started to really, really understand that these different processes and tools that I was taught and that we use every day are things that don't have to be used every time. Like there's sometimes certain contexts and situations where you just can't do those certain things. Like there was a time at SoundCloud where we needed to launch something super quickly. And one of my fellow designers got super irritated because we didn't have time to do any user testing. And I was like, you know, it's not that serious. We're going to test it afterward. Like we just want to get this change out really quick and, and start to understand how it actually lives in the wild. And this is not the right context for that. And that was a really interesting moment for me because before then I definitely would have also been like, no, we're not doing it right. You know? And I think at that point I realized how much I had grown as a designer that I was thinking more holistically about not just the designs that I was creating, but also the strategy behind the entire design process and how we were working as a team together. What do you like most about working at Etsy? Ooh, that's hard. There's so many great people there. <laughs> One of the things that I like most, besides the fact that the work is personally like fulfilling, because that was pretty similar at SoundCloud, like I was working on something that helped creative people every day, which was really awesome. And I'm doing that now too. But what I really, really like about now is that I guess like there's this I've never really felt like I've worked at a place where every single person was like so excited and committed and in love with the work that they were doing and just really kind and generous and caring. I don't feel like there's a sense of like politics, which is very, very rare because even at SoundCloud where a lot of people were also committed to doing the work that we were doing and the people who the work was serving, there were definitely still times where it felt like things got very political. So that was a really, really welcome change. And I think that places like this are so rare. So I'm just kind of like, I love this place. It's amazing. I want to be there forever. And I, I hope more places learn from that. Because like, you know, to use like a really silly phrase at the end of the day, like, we're all there to do a job and make it fulfilling for ourselves and for the people who use our service. So why bring things like we're all ambitious, but we're not trying to like cut each other down or anything. And I think that's really, really admirable. Nice. Do you get to make things there? I feel like I have to ask that because. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I do. They have an entire like a giant room that's devoted to just making stuff. And I actually got to make a wall hanging. I'm super interested in doing more 3D printing and laser cutting stuff. They've got like paper trimmings and like beads and all kinds of stuff in there. So I've definitely made a couple of things already. And I'm very excited about possibly making some candles soon, for example. Oh, cool. Yeah. I remember when I was out at Facebook last year doing some interviews, they have like a big maker lab of things with sign printing and mm -hmm. all sorts of things like that. It's interesting how companies are starting to include these, I don't know, analog labs, so to speak, within their digital products. You know, it's kind of a, a good, uh, it's a good break, I guess, from the norm. Yeah, totally. I think as someone who's like very much like digital minded, like always working on stuff, 
that includes computers. It's so amazing to just sit back and like make something with your hands. Like actually yesterday, we're renovating our kitchen and I'd been trying to make these measurement diagrams using my iPad. And I realized at some point that I just needed to sit down with a pen and paper and like draw a proper like measured out diagram. And then I scanned it and then worked from there. But it was really great to just sit down and like have a dot grid piece of paper and just like draw this stuff out. And it really, really helped to clarify things in a way that is hard to do when you're working in a digital space. So Etsy, as you're describing, it sounds like a really good place to work. It sounds like a a fun place to work as well. And this is kind of a segue into the work that you're doing with with Good for POC. For people that are listening that might not know what it is, can you tell them a little bit about that project? Yeah, so Good for POC is a project that aims to point out companies that have positive working cultures and are really pushing to make their workplaces inclusive for people of color specifically. Obviously, like diversity and inclusion is intersectional. We're trying to like point out as many positive factors as possible in the work that we're doing in the hopes that like the work that these companies are doing will hopefully also be inclusive for other marginalized groups as well. So what we we did at the beginning was we highlighted several companies and then we hosted some events and then we definitely overworked ourselves because the three of us are very ambitious, overworking people of color in tech. And so we decided to kind of just like take some time to not overwork ourselves, which I don't know how well we succeeded at considering that we've also been doing other things. But it was a very great experience to start asking these questions and starting conversations. And now we're trying to figure out what do we do from here? Like what's the biggest impact we can have? Is it to continue to just like build out a new version of the site? Is it doing something else like sponsoring tickets to conferences and things like that? So from here, we're really trying to figure out like what's next and what's the best thing that we can do because we do have a Patreon, for example. We do have like hosting fees and things like that that we are definitely still paying per month, but we want to figure out like with the remaining funds that we do have that we're currently holding on to, like let's make sure that we like put those funds to good use and really make the highest impact we can. And when you say we, it's it's not just you. It's you. It's uh, Amelie Lamont, who's also been on the show, and Jackie Alcine. Now that the project has kind of, you know, gotten legs and you're in this stage or you're trying to figure things out, where do you want to see it going in the future? Totally. So at the very least, I personally, uh-huh, I would personally really, really like to see a larger version of the site. We have this dream in our minds of this eventually being something where people are able to more easily submit feedback and perhaps it turns into more of something where it's like, hey, these are, you can kind of see like best to worst in a way, I guess you could say, where it's like, there have been so many experiences that we as a team of three people have had working at different companies where they just were not so great. And it would have definitely been nice to know ahead of time what we were getting into. So perhaps it's worth providing that space for people to not only say these are awesome places, but also these are actually quite not so good places. And it's beyond just the glass door concept because it's really getting into specific things that affect people of color, which are 
quite often different from things you might read about on Glassdoor, for example, because it's not really maybe the most comfortable space to talk about those kinds of things. So we really want to highlight certain specific questions and ask specific things that get at things that maybe other people wouldn't think to ask. So that's something that we definitely want to work on. I think we want to really, again, like figure out the best strategy to move forward with these things because building and maintaining the first version of the site was definitely challenging considering everything that we had to do. We want to possibly pull in some other people, but again, we need to figure out the best way to do that because then it starts getting a little bit more open sourcey, for example. And there's the question of like, how do you do that in a way that really makes sense and is sustainable and doesn't you know, create a bunch of conflict for people, which can happen sometimes when you build open source projects. So yeah, right now, I think we just have a lot of questions. And we're going to sit down and figure out the best way to hash those out and then move forward. Now, even with with this project, with the work you're doing at Etsy, there's still more projects. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about Brooklyn Gamery, because I feel like a lot of the, the really public work you've done over these past few years has revolved around Brooklyn Gamery and I guess around kind of the indie game development scene in general. In 2016, you put on the first Game Devs of Color Expo, which is kind of an event for, like it says, for game, you know, game developers of color. And you just had the second event at the end of June. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how it went? Oh, my God, it was amazing. So the entire concept, as you said, is definitely around highlighting and celebrating game developers of color. The first year was pretty, well, it was it was not small. It was about 250 people. And it was at Microsoft on, on Times Square. And it was like a little bit more of a test to see, are people interested in this? And it was pretty obvious that they were. So this year we wanted to host a larger event And we had gotten some feedback that people were interested in not just playing games and and like having a discussion, which was what the first year was. We just kind of had a roundtable and then people could play games and that was it. And so this year we decided, firstly, let's host a bigger venue that's more built for conferences and things like that rather than an office space. So we were able to book the Schomburg Center and they were obviously super excited. We were like, oh my God, it's the Schomburg. So... We then decided in terms of content that we wanted to, instead of it just being the roundtable and stuff I mentioned before, actually get into organizing panels and hosting micro talks and things like that. So it then turned into a more an event where you could be you could, for example, spend some time watching a talk or learning about certain things about games. Then you could also go and play some games that were created by people of color from around the world. And people were very, very excited. And we've gotten overwhelmingly positive feedback. So it went super well. We had press coverage, which was very exciting. So yeah, I am super stoked that it happened. It went well. We had way more attendees than last year, which I did not expect. So it went so much better than any of us could have ever hoped. I'm so happy. Will there be a third event in 2018? We are thinking so. One of the things that we really want to figure out, because this year I was pretty much the person who was like 
coordinating operations and doing all the fundraising and finance organization, like all the management stuff was pretty much on me and art direction too. Like I took on several roles. So now we're trying to figure out if someone who's more like, maybe we can bring on a freelancer or someone who's more suited to actually be doing this stuff, like an event planner who knows how to do layouts and and things like that. Because I am not so good at laying out a space, to be honest, when it comes to planning for 300 400 people. I kind of don't know how to do that as well as someone whose job it is to do that and who's been practiced in it for a longer time than I am. And I'm not super interested in it, to be honest. So I think we want to solidify more roles and really figure out where people can shine and continue organizing this because people really loved it. They asked us to keep it going. So we want to definitely make that happen. And you've put on other events before I know through through Brooklyn Gamer, you've done a number of game jams, but it sounds like this has been kind of the biggest event to date that you've had to kind of oversee. Totally. This was the biggest event I've ever run in my life, and it was amazing. And I am so happy that people liked it so much. It says a lot. I guess it was kind of like my love letter to people of color in games, and it seemed like it was well received. So that was really nice. <laughs> now, how have you seen the gaming community change in the past few years? I mean, aside from you know, doing this kind of event, you also are a game developer yourself. You, uh, When we talked a few years ago, you were just putting together Prism Shell. Now you've done several other games after that. Have you seen the community kind of change for people of color? And if so, in what ways? I think people are definitely more aware of the systemic inequalities that happen at various points in game development. So, for example... When I got started, I think it was harder to find collaborators and there weren't like there weren't people actively looking and searching for developers of color to support. But there have been several cases now where I've been asked explicitly like, hey, I'm working on a project and I really want to work with a person of color. Do you know anyone who's interested? I also got to help build a site called blackgamedevs.com that specifically highlights and lists out like, hey, here are like a hundred of them, like go work with them, buy their things. I've also seen a lot more conversations happen about character design, representation, what is positive and negative representation of characters in games? How do we ensure that there are more people of color participating in the development of these games so that representation is better? Like all kinds of really important, relevant and amazing conversations have started to happen. I think people, especially after the Voldemort of games, that whole movement happened. I mean, it was, it existed before, but like once it had a name, I think people really realized that there were some issues that needed to be discussed more in depth, including things like sexism, but also definitely racism and other forms of discrimination. So I think it was sad that it had to get to such a terrible point in time where people were being harassed out of games. But I also really appreciate that because that happened people are so much more aware now of how much work is to be done and they're willing to actually contribute. I remember when we spoke, you know, when we did the interview a while ago, I was talking about PBS game show. I think I was telling you. Yeah. And I mean, now it's, it's no longer being aired. I really, that it's not no longer being aired. And I remember the host getting so much just hate over the show and over the topics that he would cover It was crazy. I mean, but these were topics which I think were important and which also I think helped kind of, like you said, get the word out about 
inequalities within the gaming industry, not just on the the representational level with characters and what we see, but also the people who work kind of behind the scenes as well. I think now he's out in, I think he's in LA now because he was based in New York. Yeah, he was. Oh man, I missed that show. I wish it would come yeah, back. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Jamin Warren, right? Like he got really busy with Kill Screen, so yeah, makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah, he did the smart thing, which is organize less things at one time. But yeah, that was a really, it was definitely a really impactful show. So it was sad that yeah, it's it sucks when like things that are really amazing disappear. Hopefully, there will be more things to fill the void, but we'll see. Yeah. And I mean, with him, I think the way really kind of that I'm totally speculating here. I feel like the way PBS did it was kind of dirty by just letting it kind of peter out and then mm-hmm. its own as opposed to bringing it to a natural close in some yeah. sort. Yeah. Because I just recently heard that Idea Channel Correct. is closing down. And yeah. I'm looking at the pros and uh, I'm sort of comparing how those two things ended like with with Idea Channel ending. It's very much this. The creator decided it's shutting down. We're gonna do this Q and A like they're they're letting it go gently into that good night. Whereas with with game show, it was just there were episodes, then there weren't episodes. Mm-hmm. It was like a clip show that was like, thanks for watching. Like, <laughs> you know, it, it no. like a bad black sitcom ending where it just ends. And there's yeah, the resolution as to you know kind of what happened. Totally, and we're all just left there, sad and confused. Exactly. <laughs> I want to talk about funding with games, of, with the Game Devil Color Expo, with the game jams, and even with, you know, your other creative projects that you're, you're working on. And I want to talk about those as well. Funding kind of seems to be this perpetual reality, as I should say, that all creators tend to face, particularly creators of color. There's a piece I read back in June on uh, New York Mag on the website. Mm-hmm. They're talking about, you know, funding Internet culture and like big services like Vine and YouTube and even Reddit are kind of finding it hard to sustain this culture that they've built in some sort of way. Totally. That's through advertising or what have you. I mean, with Vine, they just... They just died. <laughs> yeah. YouTube is still kind of trying to figure out what the secret sauce is between advertisers and content creators because there's still like this big discussion now going on about content creators making things which are quote-unquote advertiser friendly mm-hmm. but then advertisers demonetizing or advertisers making sure that their work appears on shows which fit their brand like there's still this this balance that they're trying to strike i had honey back on the show for episode 200 mm-hmm. and we talked about you know funding personal creative projects she's been doing her american woman project through grants and through patreon here at revision path i've been funding it through corporate sponsorships and Patreon and the job board and the merch, <laughs> you know, these kind of different, you know, streams to, to make that happen. Can you talk a bit about like, how do you work on funding your creative projects? Because I'm, I'm sure that all of this is not just coming directly from you working at Etsy. You're able to make these things happen. Yeah. So corporate sponsorship has been the most consistent form of funding that I found so far. I mean, it would be nice if we were in a world where capitalism didn't force us to do all this so that we can make really creative, cool things. For the events that I've run, I found a lot of success in just contacting, like a lot of the case, in a lot of cases, I'll just cold contact someone or I'll hit, try to ask people on Twitter or like friends of mine, like, Hey, do you know someone at XYZ company who might be interested in this thing? Cause like, 
we've got this really cool idea and it really fits with their brand. So I found a lot of luck in just like creating pitch decks, for example, and really outlining like, hey, here's our idea. Like, here's when it's going to happen. Like, this is really good for you because X, Y, Z. Like, here's the amount of money that we're asking for. So people really respond well to that. I've had a lot more trouble in terms of games funding a lot of my games and my other creative projects that are more around like interaction design is a little bit more challenging. And I think it's, I'm not fully sure why it is like I've, I've done several applications and pitches for like publishers and for like the indie fund, for example, and especially even for games like, um, so for breakup squad, which is one of my newer games, I actually was contacted and and I was commissioned to make that game, which is really exciting because that was the first time that someone had actually successfully paid me in advance to create a game. So that literally just happened last year, which says a lot about the fact that I've been mostly doing this with friends and by myself, completely unfunded in terms of my interactive projects. I am hoping to change that, but at some point I just got really, really exhausted of from like constantly trying to like pitch this idea that I had or like these other games that I had. And some of them just felt like because there was no way for them to maybe be profitable, they wouldn't be super interesting to publishers. I've tried at least one grant application before, but when you're juggling like four or five different projects, it's also kind of tiring to have to like submit all these different applications to things and hope that in a year they actually come back. So I am now trying out Patreon to see if that's a way to to kind of move forward with the interactive projects that I'm creating because, yeah, I just haven't had a lot of luck getting people to pay me to make the games that I would like to make that clearly seem to impact people positively because like when people play breakup squad, they just like won't stop raving about it. And like Mike.com wrote about it recently, which is really exciting. So it's clear that there's like impact, but it's just like not, I guess, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. So that's, that's definitely been a a pain point for me and I'm still working at it. So I'm going to continue trying, even if it didn't work this first couple of times, but we'll see. I think it's just, again, like if your game isn't clearly tied to like some kind of like profit that could be made, it's going to be a little bit rougher to get a publisher, for example, to want to fund your work, but you might have luck through things like the National Endowment for the Arts and and grants like that. But there is going to be a lot of work involved in writing grant applications. So make sure that you put aside time to do that if you want to go the grant route. Yeah, I'll make sure that we put a link to your to your Patreon page in the show notes. I'm thinking when whenever I've seen video games try to raise money, they've used Kickstarter. Kickstarter. <laughs> Some kind of crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. I think we probably have all seen over the past few years that gaming projects on Kickstarter are mm. it's it's a crap <laughs> Like they mm-hmm. can either do really well in the case of like Double Fine, I think is the name of the yeah. really good, or they can just kind of crash and burn. There's one there's one project I <laughs> one project I supported called Super Retro Squad. No. Oh. And it was supposed to be a kind of 8-bit Nintendo-like game, mm-hmm. but instead of you playing as Mario, you could play as Simon Belmont or you could play as Mega Man, you could play as 
you know, like any of these other 8-bit characters, not mm. too similar to what you see now with, say, Super Mario Maker. But he, he tried to do this, I want to say, like back in 2013, 2014. And that project has underwent so many changes and pitfalls. Like he had to change the name. He had to change the graphics engine. Yeah. Assist. I would have. <laughs> he took the he took the Kickstarter money and like bought a house. Oh God! To, to have his team in, and then all the team left, and then he was just him by himself. And I mean, years and years later, he's still working on the project, which I guess you know shows the tenacity of of wanting to put something like this out in the world. But you know, there can be those those times where it's just. I mean, I'm thinking of the other gaming projects I've supported on mm-hmm. Kickstarter. They're all have been grossly delayed. Yep. Or they're still they're still not out yet. Totally. And that's what I don't want. So like I didn't even mention Kickstarter because I explicitly avoid kickstarting things. Like it's just very clear that people firstly, when someone kickstarts a game or kickstarts any project, they have like this very clear expectation tied to the proposed launch date. And yes. people do not understand that stuff, no matter what estimate you give, it's probably not going to be a big enough estimate. So there's like this expectation that's going to automatically not be met. Secondly, like people often don't understand the cost that goes into things. And that's for both people who are estimating the cost of how much their project is going to take to make and the people on the other side who, for example, expect a game that should play for like 20 plus hours and they expect it to only be like a $50,000 game. Like that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not possible. So there's like all of these expectations that are way out of bounds. And so people get super angry. And then on the other side, it's just like the people who are estimating these things are often not so good at planning because they're new to doing that and to having these expectations put on them for launch dates and stuff like that. And so they like set these outrageous dates and they don't meet them and then they're super stressed out. So I was just like, no, I can't handle on top of all my other projects. I don't need to have angry people constantly harassing me and commenting on my stuff. And I don't want to fail people and have that attached to my name. So there were just a lot of reasons why I was like, this is not for me. Like if I knew concretely that I would be able to definitely without a doubt launch something on some date set in the future and that I could somehow magically fund it definitely with the amount of money I'd be asking for that would maybe be like under a hundred thousand dollars like then maybe I'd do it but it's also just not a good time anymore I think to kickstart things because people are very very wary of putting their money into things unless they really can trust the people who are asking which I think is great. Like, I think it's important to have a little bit of skepticism when you're giving your money to random people on the internet. But yeah, <laughs> it's, I don't think it's for me. <laughs> I don't want people to have these expectations I can't meet. Well, when you put it that way about giving money to strangers on the internet, <laughs> that definitely <laughs> that definitely drives the point home. Yeah. And also with, with crowdfunding, whether it's Kickstarter, Indiegogo, what have you, I think just the climate around it has changed because before it was this, you know, hopefully I think this might've been thought that way. It was this pure, just giving of funds for a particular thing. And sometime between the advent of this and now it's just changed. I mean, there've been mm-hmm. people that have started Kickstarter campaigns that have just absconded with the money mm-hmm. and there's no way to reach them. There's no funds. There's no product or anything. The product comes out, it's wildly defective. 
Yep. Or it's just not good. I'm thinking mainly a Mighty Number no. Nine here. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Small soapbox here. I paid into that, and I didn't even get a copy of the game. Oh no. <laughs> like they kept sending out these like beta binaries or something, and I yeah. was like, compile this. Like I still don't have a working copy of the game. And then when I saw the reviews come mm-hmm. out, and all the reviews were terrible, I was like, well. That's just $20 or however much I paid, like, down the drain. Like, yeah. just, just charge it to the game. But, yeah, like, it's the whole climate around crowdfunding now has changed where, yeah, it used to be, I think, a really good way to get money for a project. But now it's – I also think people that crowdfund into these kind of things expect a – it's almost like they expect it to be a store. Yeah. You know? Like, I paid $20. Where's my blank? And totally. Like, there's more that has to go into it. It's not just – this one thing that you thought it was going to be. And so gaming, I feel like, is one of those projects that, I don't know, crowdfunding in those traditional sorts of ways just mm-hmm. doesn't Totally, yeah. I think for, like, physical products, like books and things that need to be printed, Kickstarter is pretty great. For, like, films, it can be kind of iffy. Like, I don't even know what happened with the Veronica Mars series or whatever they were trying to make. I oh, totally my- funded that, and... I have no idea what happened with my money, but (laughs) yeah. And then I, I I don't know where that went. So that was fun, but yeah, you're just, you're honestly just gambling and you have to go into it being comfortable with the fact that you may lose your money because it is actually just like investing in stocks. Like you might lose your investment and the company that you put your money into might just liquidate all its assets and disappear. Like you just have no idea what is going to happen. And if you're not comfortable with that as a person putting money into it, then it's going to really fail you severely. So now what I do is I just really look into the team of people that are asking me for money and I, yeah, I just like make sure to really use good judgment when I am thinking about possibly kickstarting something. Like I just put money into Pebble and then they died. But, you know, I still have the first Pebble watch. So it worked out kind of and I got my money back. They actually refunded everyone, which is super cool. But yeah, it's it's all a giant gamble. Yeah, it really is. I'm trying to think of for me and I've crowdfunded hundreds of projects between yep. Kickstarter and Indiegogo <laughs> and the gaming projects that I found, which without fail, 100% of the time come through, puzzles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Most of the board games come through. Yeah. Puzzles, yeah. Board games, card games, without a doubt, always come through with a hitch. Like, mm-hmm. there was one. God, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was a, uh, it was like an, an Indian-themed board game mm-hmm. around, like, Indian mythology. Mm. I want to say that I funded that. And I mean, two weeks later, I had the game. It wow. was remarkable. I was like, this is the fastest I've ever seen a Kickstarter project fulfilled for a game. That's amazing. I think I'm still waiting on one, which is Maho Shoujo Fight Like a Girl. And I will wait endlessly for that Kickstarter game to actually come out. And that one is like a board game. But again, it's like, generally, if it's something that you can print out, you're literally just paying for paper. So how hard is that to like stick to the budget on on like paper and like a designer to make it look really, really cool and feel great. But yeah, there's just not you don't have to pay like engineers generally to like program your game or like deal with as many things as you would when you're making a digital interactive piece. So yeah, if you're looking at a board game or like a puzzle or a card game on Kickstarter, you're you're probably making a good investment in comparison to any type of digital project. 
Yeah, the the last video game that I sponsored on Kickstarter was oh, it was Orion. Oh Let's, yeah. Actually came out. <laughs> actually came out. I had Olivier on the show. I think it was after after the one hundredth episode. So it was like twenty fifteen. But so I got a chance to talk to him like from Cameroon about how he put together his team and how they built the game and everything. And it's it's out. You can buy it on Steam. They're still developing it. Like that was amazing. But even from talking with him, I mean, yeah, he put it on Kickstarter, but Kickstarter was like mm-hmm. round six of fundraising that he did. Like he had raised money through all these other means. And then finally, once he had something that was really good that people could see, mm-hmm. Kickstarter. Genius. So it wasn't just had this concept. He's like, I've got videos, I got sketches, because he had been developing the idea since 2003, Mm -hmm. and the game has went through several visual changes and iterations before it got to where it is now. He had a team built up when he launched the Kickstarter, so it wasn't just him. He had like 20 people and a company behind it that he could, you know, kind of put this on. And so, yeah, yeah, that was really kind of one. That's the last video game I funded that really actually kind of made it to see the light of day. Yeah, I think if you're coming into any of these type of crowdfunding websites where you're like actively trying to like fund a project and you've like set this deadline and all this kind of stuff, you really do have to come into it with like a team ready. You like if you want to succeed really like yeah, like like they did, like make sure that you actually seek out other opportunities first. Make sure that you will not fail, basically. Because like your name is gonna be attached to this after it either, you know, is successful or fails. Like people are going to remember when they hear about that project, if they were, you know, either participated in funding it or if they heard about it through like marketing, because Kickstarter is amazing for marketing purposes. So if you already have other sources of funding, it's just like a super awesome way to let people know about it in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise. So if it's part of like a larger strategy, then it can be really well and smartly done. But again, it's like, do you have the time to do that? It's the real question. Yeah, I mean, that's that's just, you know, sound advice, I think, for anyone that's trying to fund some kind of creative project through a big crowdfunding campaign like make sure you come with just more than an idea yeah and as many contingencies as possible i I would say especially around the funding amount because even if you might say oh i did the numbers and it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars like you probably need to add ten percent to that for pledges Mm -hmm. and expired cards and all sorts you know and kickstarters fees Mm -hmm. whichever one you decide to use totally Take all of that into consideration before you really kind of, you know, make that make that leap. There's still a couple of games I'm waiting for from Kickstarter, which they've been at least diligent about updates. But all the Mm -hmm. updates, yeah, the game's not ready yet. Right. Like, uh, (laughs) thanks. But can you actually just tell me when you're done? I don't need to hear that you're not done. Right. Yeah. (laughs) What advice would you give to somebody that wants to kind of follow your path like uh, you've done so much over these past few years i mean we didn't even and well we can touch on on your public speaking because i do Mm want to talk about that but you've done so many things over these past few years you've you've leveled up in your career you have taken on these really super ambitious personal projects um yeah like what's the most useful advice you've gotten throughout this whole time yeah i think um my advice would be 
to test your own limits and push yourself past what you're comfortable doing. So for example, when I started doing public speaking, I was very, very uncomfortable. And even doing things like this podcast and like being on a stage still make me really uncomfortable and nervous. But every time I do one of these things, or I do like a project that I thought I wasn't comfortable at work, for example, or or things like that, I feel more confident in my own abilities. And I just gain this new excitement and like pride for myself and, and what I can do as a person. I also think it's important not to like put yourself into a box because very often people will try to ask like, Oh, what do you do? And like, if you're like me, then you might list off like 10 different things and they're just like, what? So it's easy for people to kind of say like, Oh, well, cat's just like a designer or like cat just does this thing. But that doesn't mean that you personally, you don't have to like compartmentalize yourself. You can actually do as many things as you're interested in. It's really around making sure that you understand how much you can do at one time. Because for me, for example, it's not possible for me to do more than like three projects at a given time. And I learned about that through pushing my own boundaries and understanding what I was comfortable doing and what's too much and what's when I can actually take on more things. Yeah, let's talk about, you know, public speaking. Yes, I I sort of brought it up, then you brought it up. <laughs> you've really been killing it on the speaker front. These Thanks. past years have been crushing it at different events. You put out a book <laughs> about how to, you know, get into public speaking. And I have to admit, I always recommend you when conferences come to Revision Path and they're like, yeah, who should we include for, you know, our speakers? We're trying to have more diverse speakers. And first I roll my eyes. Yeah, right. <laughs> The last minute, and I've mm-hmm. addressed this on the show, so that's probably why I don't get those emails anymore. But <laughs> what happened? I'm like, you should really talk to Cat Small. Like she's she's out here doing it. What have your conference experiences been like as a speaker? Ooh, so yeah, it's been interesting because speaking of like payment, when sometimes sometimes people will disappear when you talk about like, hey, you know that there's labor involved with preparing a talk. Like you should probably pay me and not just for travel because this is not a vacation. So that's interesting. But other than that, I've absolutely loved like being on stage and getting to talk to people about the things that I'm interested in. I definitely love talking more about my work and being like representing through the cool things that I've done and talking about my cool stuff rather than talking about like, Oh, like being a woman in tech or being a person of color in games or something like that. Like I much more enjoy talking about my work rather than being a like diversity, you know, like token of sorts. So I, it's taken some time to realize that I think about myself, like the way that I want to contribute on stage to the concept of like tech and games being more inclusive spaces is really by showing up and and presenting about the things that I love to make and hopefully inspiring other people who look like me or relate to me and the things that I do to also do the same. So that's been super cool. Learning how to value my own work and really put my foot down and ask for compensation and things like that has been a huge learning experience. And I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of fun in a way, (laughs) like really starting to understand like 
what is a, a good speaking engagement? What's a not so good speaking engagement? What are some signs of people who maybe don't really understand the value of the time of the speakers that they're requesting and stuff like that. So yeah, it's been a huge learning experience and it's really positively impacted my career too. Like, I don't know if I'd be working at SoundCloud if I hadn't done public speaking before then. So it's been awesome. Interesting. Can you talk about like what some of those things are? I mean, not to give away like your total secrets behind Mm -hmm. it, what are kind of the, the things that you look out for when an organization or event wants to have you speak? Totally. So what I immediately do is I will, I'll look at their site and kind of see, okay, like, where's this place? Do they have like a code of conduct? Who's already agreed to speak there? What kind of content are they interested in? Do they charge? And once I've gathered some information about that kind of stuff, then I'll say, okay, either I'm interested or like, hey, I'm not so interested. Like, here's some other people. If I am interested, then what I'll immediately do is ask do you have a budget for speakers? Because the majority of the time they don't ask, they don't mention or ask if I have like a fee or things like that. So I'm immediately like, do you have a fee that you, or like, do you have a budget for speakers? Like generally this is how much I charge and stuff like that. But I'll also ask like, Hey, these are the topics that I usually speak about. Like, what are you interested in hearing? If they get back to me and they say, Oh, we're interested in hearing about like your experience as a marginalized person that I'm kind of like, well, I'm interested in talking about XYZ. So like, I can kind of like take some of the things that they're interested in having me talk about and mold it into something that I'm interested in talking about. So that's also been interesting. But yeah, if they say that they don't have a budget for speakers, then I'll go point out how much their conference tickets cost. And If we have to end the conversation there, then we have to end the conversation there. I'll recommend some other people who maybe are more willing to speak for free or for just travel costs because some people are trying to get their names out. And I definitely don't knock the people who are willing to compromise in that way. But I personally feel like I'm at a point where if you're not going to pay me for the amount of labor that goes into a talk, which is like sometimes upwards of like 40 hours, then it's not going to be a positive experience for me. And I'm creating content for these, you know, engagements. So basically, it's got to be worth it for everyone. And I want people to understand that. Yeah, I I did a a podcast a few months ago with Working File. It's like a group design podcast. It was me and Cap Watkins. Mm -hmm. uh, Cap. And we were talking about our conference experiences and I, at the time, I still kind of feel this way, but at the time I was really keyed off because I was in the middle of like a bad conference experience. Oh, gee. (laughs) And I had to speak about conferences and I was like, yeah, at this point, I'm just kind of over it because so many conference organizers will reach out to me and the minute I mention anything about a speaker's budget or something, the conversation just it just ends. Mm-hmm. Or it just, and I don't know if the conference organizers don't realize that it is work to put together the presentation. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got a talk in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. Research, you have to build the presentation, you know, source images, etc. Mm-hmm. Time yourself doing it, maybe shave time off or, mm-hmm. or things like that, depending on what the constraints of the time is that you have to speak. You know, it's a lot of stuff that has to go into it. And even if it's for a talk you've already done, you've still got to re-rehearse it. You totally. may have on it for statistics or things that you might mention 
throughout. It is still work. Like no one's, <laughs> I'm totally. pretty sure it's going to the conference organizer and asking them to come for free. Right. You know, so they should think that, or they should at least realize that there's work that has to go into it for the speaker as well. But yeah, I was in the middle of a bad conference experience and I went on there and I was just like, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> and you know, hindsight is 2020. I look back on it and I'm like, yeah, I was pissed off. I still kind of feel that same way because I've still got events that are coming that are like, yeah, we would love for you to speak or, or what will happen now is, oh, we'd love for you to do a live episode of Revision Pass oh. from our event. And I'm like, great. What's your budget? Budget? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I have for you. I was like, you know what stuff I have to bring? Like, I've got to bring first of all a whole other bag. Mm-hmm. Just for my, well, it's a it's a case now. I got a one of those hard waterproof cases. You fancy. Oh, that's that's thanks to my Patreon page. Hey, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> well, I got to bring that with my mics and my portable recorder and everything. I've got to bring my stands. Like, that's all stuff I've got to check in if I'm flying. Nine times out of ten, I will be flying. Like, that's extra everything and then of course i have to set up at the event i gotta record maybe re-record i gotta break all that stuff down i gotta bring it back with me word and you want me to do all of that for free Mm -mm. that's crazy and the and the event that asked that they were like well we've got other we've got other shows that are doing it for free i'm like oh yeah like who right oh well design details is doing it Mm -hmm. and and design matters with debbie millman and i'm like Mm -hmm. that's that's nice they're definitely not (laughs) I was like, I don't, I don't believe that, but thanks for playing. You right. know, kind of, yeah. I think, you know, certainly being able to, to put yourself in that position to ask for those things as early as possible, just cuts out any sort of ambiguity that might happen. Like mm-hmm. you don't want to get there. And then it's like, Oh, did we say that? Or anything like that? Mm-hmm. One person who I spoke with, uh, this was a while ago. I forgot who it was. I, I talked to, but he was telling me that his criteria for kind of deciding what, the honorarium is mm-hmm. like what he will charge because he'll vary it per event is the cost of a regular admission ticket times five. Yep. Cause he's like, I could guarantee I could probably bring at least that many people who will want to come and hear me speak. That's super smart. I like that a lot. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And so that way you can always vary it. So if it's a smaller event and it's like, 50 bucks you can say okay you know 250 or something that should be mm-hmm. something that they can swing and then if it's a really big event where it's like a thousand dollars a ticket yeah they should be able to swing five thousand dollars for an honorarium you totally. know uh, so you kind of want to vary it i guess based on what it is on what the event is totally um, yeah i'm more willing to negotiate and consider like a, a lower fee for nonprofit events i think my goal like over the next couple of months and the next year is to really figure out like for those kinds of events, like, is there like, for example, like can the Patreon kind of help to like cover those events where I want to do this out of goodwill, but like, I'm also breaking my back to like create a really good presentation that really affects people in a positive way. Like, is there like, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens, but like, I want to find a way to do more of that again, because I used to do a lot of teaching and, and public speaking for no money. And it felt great in terms of like the people I got to meet and things like that, but I was also exhausted and that was not so fun to deal with. So I want to find a happy medium where I feel good because I'm, I'm meeting great people and I'm hopefully positively affecting people's lives but I'm also getting somehow compensated for that 
So, yeah, we'll see. I think it'll happen. I think as more of us in the industry start to speak out about it, um, organizers will realize that this is something that they need to to really think about and factor in because – and I say that because these are also going to be the same organizers that will come to you maybe at the last minute to want something. Mm-hmm. And I would think that if, you coming, if you're coming at the last minute, then that certainly needs to warrant some kind of – right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and with Game Devs of Color Expo, the last two weeks, we got a ton of money from sponsors and stuff. So it was really like the last minute is when it turns out, at least from my experience, that like an event organizer might have the most money. So you should be really willing to pay, especially if you're going to make me make a talk up in like two weeks or something ridiculous like that, which has definitely happened. I've had a person ask me like, Hey, could you, I know you're like going upstate to do this other talk. Could you also afterward, firstly, adjust your flights and then show up (laughs) in like Kentucky and do another talk and then fly back. And can you do it for like no fee? And can you do it in like two weeks? And I was just like, are you serious? Like, no, (laughs) for so many reasons. I'm okay, you know, so that was, uh, that was fun. Yeah. (laughs) What's your dream project right now? Do you have one? Ooh, that's a good question. Just like, well, I am currently trying to finish up Sweetheart, which is a game I've been working on for a while. So that's kind of my realistic dream. But yeah, beyond that, like, I just have so many things on the back burner that I need to do. So... Yeah, I kind of want to take those things on. I think I'd prefer to work with a team of people rather than do things by myself. For a long time, I was I was like the person who just like does everything on my own. And like I've been working on Sweetheart for so long because of that. Like I'm doing the art, I'm doing the writing, I'm doing the programming. And I realized at some point that I cannot do music. So I've gladly started collaborating with something someone on that. But yeah, I, I think really... Even if the subjects vary, my dream working situation is definitely a group of people who are super excited about the project that maybe I have the idea for or someone else has the idea for. And we just spend like maybe three to six months working on uh, something that hopefully changes people's lives or makes them laugh or makes them feel uncomfortable. Is there anything in particular this year that you want to accomplish? Yeah, I'd really like to actually launch Sweetheart and Breakup Squad. (laughs) Because we have soft launch breakup squad and we're currently trying to build out more of those levels for the game. So and some more functionality around things like requiring less than five people to play because five people is hard to come across when you're trying to play a video game. So, yeah, launching those two projects and then actually being able to focus next year on doing something with Sensu, which was a sex ed project that I was working on uh, when I was getting my master's degree. I think that'd be the ideal situation. Where do you kind of see yourself in the next five years or so? Like, where do you think your your career is going to go from here? Ooh, it would be really interesting if I could get to a point where I was maybe doing design direction or something like that at a company. I could very much see that being where I end up. I'm still trying to figure out if I'd like to be a manager or if I am the type of person who wants to continue contributing more individually. I want to see if there's a way if I can do leadership. Like, is there a way to do leadership without having to do the whole HR mess of things? A lot of people say yes, but I want to see that 
proven in action. Like I want to be at a point where I am supporting other designers and, and directing them in terms of the work that they're doing, but perhaps not. I, I'm just not sure if I want to be in charge of salaries and stuff like that. So that's been a big question in my mind, but I'd love to get to a point where I'm doing something in more of a leadership role in terms of product design work, in terms of my own projects, I'd really love to get more into showing my, my work on, on a state uh, or not on stages, but like in shows and things like that. I was really honored this year that I got to show breakup squad at several events around the United States and even in the UK. So I'd like to continue doing more of that for sure. Awesome. Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here, Kat, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. It's Kat Small, C-A-T-T-S-M-A-L-L. Same for my website. It's catsmall.com. I'm also on Facebook and I am also on Patreon, all at Kat Small. So yeah, if you want to follow along, all of those are great places to start. And other than that, Brooklyn Gamery is a great Twitter handle for the company that I helped to run. Good for POC is another great Twitter handle. And the website for that is goodforpocin.tech. All right. Sounds good. Well, Kat, it has been a pleasure to catch up with you and to have you come back on the show. As I was preparing for this interview, of course, I went back and listened to our earlier episode. I know we geeked out a lot about games. We talked a lot, I think, about games here as well but it has been such a a thrill for me just kind of as a fan of your work to see how much you have grown and progressed over these past few years not just I think as you know a product designer and as a game developer but also as just a voice in both of these communities you know people can be more than one thing they don't have to just sort of pigeonhole themselves into just being a product designer or just being a game developer, just being any one thing. If there mm-hmm. are multiple talents that they have, they should work to kind of cultivate all of that and use that to become kind of a more well-rounded person in this industry. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Of course. So happy to be here again, Maurice. And yeah, I love Revision Path and I will like shout from the rooftops continuously. So thank you for running this great podcast and thanks to everyone who listens to it. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Kat Small and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kat and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. 2 billion? Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your product, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. You know your business. Let MailChimp help you grow it. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing domains. Hover offers free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect domains to your favorite service. Ready to get started? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. 
Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings for a design podcast. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us today at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, learn about upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Push that.